Good morning, you may be seated. My name is Kyle, I'm one of the pastors here. Very warm welcome to you all. In Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light by faith in Jesus. That's who we are as a people. Let's hear what his word has to teach us this morning. As we read Acts chapter 1, verses 20 through 26, the end of the chapter is where we find ourselves today. And let's remind ourselves of where we've been so far, because we're kind of just dropping into the middle of the story here. Last week, we were introduced, or reintroduced, we could say, to Judas Iscariot, probably one of the most famous names being notorious throughout history. His name is synonymous with what it means to betray, what it means to turn against, what it means to you know, walk away from somebody after years of building trust. We revisited his story last week about how his betrayal of Jesus led to death. Two deaths, really, when you think about it. The first is Jesus' death, because in betraying Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus then went on to his trial under the religious and the state authorities, which led to his execution on the cross. But also it led to Judas's death by suicide, perhaps something he didn't anticipate occurring, but it happened nonetheless, and so creating a vacancy among the apostles. The more you think about it, the more tragic it is. Here is someone who followed Jesus very closely, was apparently trusted with handling the money. Jack talked about the fact that he might have been especially close to Jesus himself, and yet Judas denies Christ and turned aside from him, Peter says, to go to his own place. He sold out his rabbi for 30 pieces of silver, choosing not to worship God, but worship mammon instead. And whether he did these things out of selfish or naive reasons at this point in the text, that's moot. Luke said Judas's actions were done in wickedness. And so here we see the apostles wrestling with the sorrow that came because of Judas's wickedness. The apostles loved Judas. He was one of them. He was one of their boys. He was one of the guys. He had traveled with them year after year after year. And then they part ways in such a tragic way. And on top of that, now they're burdened by the fact that there's one less of them. Jesus chose 12 men, and yet there's a vacancy. There was only 11. Was Jesus wrong in choosing 12? Perhaps they're wondering. And as all of the 11 apostles came together, they came together in unity and praying, apparently reading scripture as well. And at one point, Peter stood up during this meeting to encourage the apostles to press forward. The scripture had to be fulfilled, Peter said. In other words, God was not surprised when Judas betrayed Jesus. And we know this because of scripture. Scripture of the Holy Spirit spoken beforehand by the mouth of David, he says. And here's where we pick up from the story last week. Acts chapter one, verse 20. Peter said, for it's written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. That is Psalm 69, 25, if you're interested. 
And, Peter said, let another take his office. That's Psalm 109, verse 8. So Peter is appealing to the Psalms. He's telling us to look backward into the Old Testament to figure out how we're supposed to move forward as apostles. First, he wants to recognize the sad fact that Judas is now gone. This language of desolation, of no one dwelling in his camp. And second, he's pointing to the Old Testament to demonstrate that Judas's replacement was in a sense foreshadowed. And so now we need to discern the will of God who's going to take Judas's place. Well, why these two verses, Psalm 69, 25 and Psalm 109, 8? If we're honest with ourselves for just a minute, they kind of seem like a reach, right? Almost like he's cherry picking the text to make the point that he wanted to make already. Anybody of you uh, ever experienced cherry-picking texts before? You have that proof text friend, right? Maybe, uh, maybe it was uh, late night for you and your wife. You wake up, it's Saturday. You're deciding whether or not you're going to sleep in. You roll over. You open up the Bible. Let me get Psalm 127 here. Let's see. Verse 2, it says, It's in vain for you to rise up early, for he gives his beloved sleep. Baby, let's just stay the yard will mow itself, right? That's cherry-picking texts. That's not what Peter's doing, right? That's not at all what Peter is doing. He chose these two passages in specific for a reason, and he's pushing our attention back to the Old Testament for a reason. What are those reasons? They begin to unlock to us we double-click on what these verses mean. First one, let's go back to Psalm 69. So you can flip over there if you'd like to and kind of get a taste for what this entire psalm is about. This psalm, while you're going there, is what biblical scholars call an imprecatory song. That's a fancy word for an appeal to God for vengeance. So these are the psalms that you read about battle and loss and God, why did that happen? God, I need you to come and destroy the army. You are the God of hosts, the God of the armies, right? Why don't you come and destroy our enemies for us? That's an imprecatory psalm, and this is one of those. And in Psalm 69, David's many enemies are actually making fun of him after a series of military losses and defeats. And David is concerned not only for himself and his own reputation, but also for God's reputation. You see, in antiquity, nations were wedded, so to speak, to gods. And so David's appeal to God is this. If we keep losing and our enemies keep making fun of me, doesn't that reflect bad on you, God? And if that's the case, why won't you do something about it? Why, why won't you take vengeance on us? And so David pleads for vengeance. If, if my enemies, David said, have desolated uh, villages and homes and camps in the Judean and Israeli countryside, well, he says to God, may their camp be desolate. Let no one dwell in their tents. And it's this verse right here that Peter takes and he applies to Judas. Why? Well, I think the logic is simple. Peter is saying, if God can avenge an oppressed people, generally speaking, then how much more is God going to 
take revenge on a person who betrayed his very son. In other words, we've seen this in our past as a people, so should we really be all that surprised when we see it in our present? There's this sting of irony, too, because Judas took the money that he gained in his betrayal of Jesus, and he bought a field, a place where he could develop the land, set up a camp, and perhaps one day build a house. And yet, because Judas has died by suicide, and nobody wants to have anything to do with that field anymore, they even called it the field of blood, no one is going to live there now. That field is desolate, the very same word that David used in Psalm 69. Then Peter, saw, or Peter uh, cites Psalm 109, verse 8, which is another imprecatory song. This time David wishes that God would do something about the suffering from a wicked man that he is experiencing. So if you turn there, kind of read through it a little bit and get the gist of what's happening. He's, he's experiencing some kind of suffering from a wicked man. We don't know who or what wicked man this was, apparently some kind of opponent to David. And David wishes that this man would just be gone. He wishes that God would replace this wicked man with another. And so David says in verse 8, may his days, may the wicked man's days, be few. May another take his office. And Peter takes this passage and applies it to Judas. In other words, if God wouldn't tolerate a wicked man bothering David and removed him quickly, then how much more can God tolerate the wickedness of Judas's betrayal of the son of David? Judas cast his lot, betrayed Christ, and caused suffering among the apostles. And now that God has judged Judas, Peter says, let another take his place. It's time to move on and to replace Judas. So I believe this is partly why Peter is appealing to the Old Testament. He could have just stood up in the middle of the prayer meeting and said, look, this stinks. We're all experiencing the pain of the betrayal, but Judas is gone. We need to move on. Peter is becoming a first among equals, kind of the leader of the apostles. So it would have been appropriate for him to say that, but he doesn't. He first appeals to the Old Testament. He, he turns everybody's chins backwards into their own nation's history to see God willing and working in the life of the Old Testament. And the thing I think he's trying to show is that these kinds of things, betrayal, replacement, they've happened in Israel's past before. So Peter wants us to recognize that while history doesn't repeat itself, sometimes it rhymes. And if we can hear that rhyme, we can kind of see where things are going next. It actually helps us discern what's coming around the corner. And it actually goes much deeper than that. This is fascinating. Uh, bear with me for a moment, because it takes a little bit of explaining. But to really understand and appreciate the complexity and the interplay of the New Testament and the Old Testament here, we have to consider looking backwards in Israel's history all the way to the very beginning of the Bible and then looking forward into the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible to see what's going on in relationship to Israel as represented by 12 tribes and a new Israel being created by Jesus through the Holy Spirit represented by 12 apostles. What do I mean? When God established the nation of Israel, 
through Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. He did so by giving land to Jacob's 12 sons' descendants. You're probably familiar with at least some of these names, if not all of them, but at the beginning of the book, or the, the beginning of the Bible in the book of Numbers, they tell us exactly who these tribes of people were. They were descendants or tribes of Reuben, Simeon, Gad, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. This is not the only time we're going to see this list of the tribes of Israel. We're going to see it again in Revelation at the end of the Bible. But interestingly, the order that the list is presented in gets shuffled around. Instead of Reuben first, we have Judah, then Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and then finally Benjamin. If you look at the lists and compare them long enough, you know that the rearranging is not the only thing that's different about them. What else is different about them? One tribe, Dan, has been completely replaced by another tribe, Levi. Why? Well, I think that's super interesting when you consider that the 12 apostles of the New Testament are representative of God's new Israel. And we're given a hint of this in Revelation 21:14, which says, in the wall of the city, or the new Jerusalem, had 12 foundations, and on them had the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. In other words, the representatives of the new Jerusalem, the new Zion being built by Jesus in the church age is represented by the 12 apostles, which hints back at the 12 tribes of Israel. And that just as a tribe of Israel was replaced, Dan for Levi, so too would an apostle of the new Israel be replaced, Judas for someone else. Are you with me so far? But why? Why was Dan replaced with Levi? And if we knew that, would that help shed light on why Peter's so interested in looking backwards in the Old Testament and even help us explain a little bit more of why Judas was ultimately replaced. I think it does. In the book of Judges, we learn about the tribe of Dan's story, that in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. In other words, they're looking for land. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So. All the other tribes are starting to get settled. They're starting to build their villages. The tribe of Dan's like, where's our land? We're going to go find it. And they end up finding, it seems like a really small throwaway detail, but it's important. They end up finding land that's adjacent or just west of the tiny village of Kiryat Jerim. That's in Judges 8, 12. Kiryat, remember that word, that town. So they conquer this land near Kiryat which means that the path of Dan's replacement leads in some way through Kiriath. But Dan messed up. Not like Dan isn't the person, I'm sorry if you're a Dan and you just heard and you're like, how did I mess up? Dan, the tribe in the Old Testament, messed up. They became idolaters. Continuing in the story in Judges 18, the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. In other words, 
the tribe of Dan were idolaters while also trying to have a sanctuary to God. It's almost like they're hedging their spiritual bet here. But the tribe of Levi, on the other hand, were the priest tribe, the true worshipers of Yahweh, if you will. So what this tells us is that the path of replacement for Dan not only leaves through, goes through Kiriat, but it also goes through idolatry or split allegiance. Because at the end of the day, like God is not going to accept your half worship, and he's not going to accept worship where you have split allegiances. You either worship God all the way or you don't worship him at all. You either worship the creator or you worship something in the created order. There isn't a middle ground. You can't hedge your bets. It's God or nothing. Jesus put it this way. You can't worship two gods at once. Said it in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either they'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Then he says something interesting. You can't serve God and money, as in money can be a master, money can be a God. So you can't serve both of these at the same time. Why do I bring that up? I think it's interesting that Judas was the money keeper. So he is the closest in proximity to the temptation of split allegiance between following the Lord Jesus and following Mammon. In other words, like ancient Dan, Judas tried to serve two masters at once, Christ and silver. And like ancient Dan, Judas was destined to be replaced. You hear history rhyming? You ready for the plot twist? It's even crazier. Judas is the only apostle whose birth town we know of. We know where some of the apostles were from, like where they lived and worked. For example, Peter was from Capernaum. We don't really know where he's born. But we do know where Judas was born because it's in his name, Judas Iscariot. That's not his last name, that's his birth town. Guess what the Old Testament word for Iscariot is? Kiriat. Where's Judas from? The approximate area where Dan conquered and tried to worship two gods at once. So like the tribe of Dan, Judas' path to replacement also goes through Kiriat. That's wild, right? Wild. Again, history doesn't repeat itself. Often it rhymes. And the tribe of Dan, representative of Israel, was replaced because of their split allegiance. So too was the apostle Judas, representative of a new Israel, replaced because he sold out Jesus, because of his split allegiance. That's why Peter's pointing us back to the Old Testament. He's not cherry picking, he's not being obscure, he's reminding us that nothing is outside of the scope of God's knowledge, that nothing is outside of the scope of God's providence that Judas's betrayal of Christ and his worship of two gods and his replacement was always known by God. In fact, as a nation, we've kind of already been here. So that even something as terrible as the betrayal of the Son of God himself that leads to death, God knew that was coming. He wasn't surprised when Judas betrayed the Son. So the question is, well, then why did God allow it? If God knows, if, 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 if it's true that history rhymes and you can see these patterns develop in Scripture and God knows for a fact that terrible things or evil is going to occur, then why does he allow it? One of the simplest and yet most difficult answers to this question to receive is from Romans 8, 
verse 28, where Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, even the betrayal of the Son of God by Judas because of his split allegiance, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, how? How does that work out with Judas's betrayal of Jesus? Well, think about it. What if God, knowing that Judas would betray his son, prevented Judas from doing so? We would have no arrest, which would lead to no trial of Jesus, which means we would have no crucifixion, and so we have no atonement for our sins, and we would have no resurrection, which means there is no defeat over death. Like, that's the good that God uses of the all things to bring about good, right? But I don't know why God allows terrible things to happen in our life, and they do. But I do know what Scripture says about God is true, that he's good, and has promised to set all things right. Because Jesus says this in Revelation 21.5, one of the most awesome proclamations of the Lord Jesus. Behold, look, pay attention, hear me. I'm making all things new. All things What did Paul say that God uses to bring about good for those who love him? All things. He's not making all new things. He's making all things new. And to grip this promise, to wrestle with this proclamation in prayer until it yields its effect on your heart is to have a foretaste of another promise that we're given in Revelation, which is this. God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Terrible things happen in this fallen world. And when we do, when they do, we, we do lament. We do mourn. But Paul invites us not to grieve as others do, as those who have no hope, especially in the context here, what Paul is saying, in the loss of someone's life. God knew that loss was coming, but God has a plan to make it right. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, Paul elaborates, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. But God is in the renewal business. He is in the resurrecting business, the restoration business. In fact, his chief joy is to be glorified through redeeming what's lost and restoring what's broken. That's why he sent his son. I don't know why terrible things happen, but we are given promises to take hold of. And the only reason those promises are true is because the tomb is empty. Judas made his choice. He betrayed Jesus for silver, bought a plot of land, but Judas is gone, and that land is desolate. It's vacant, which also means, and here we move on in the text, his office is vacant too. 
And so the apostles come to the conclusion it's time to replace Judas. Read with me verses 21 and 22. Peter's continuing. He says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from his baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, that being the ascension that we saw at the beginning of the book, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Two caveats or two small notes. Note number one, witness to the resurrection. Um, I'm just going to throw this out there because it's a theme that's going to build throughout Acts and I want us to pay attention to it. That word for witness is where we get the word martyr from. So Peter's saying one of these men needs to be martyrs of the resurrection for us. In other words, gospel proclaimers, even if it takes their life. And then uh, second, this is not some kind of blanket authority to become apostle, right? So what, what Peter's not saying is he's like, look, if you can check these three boxes, you can become an apostle. Because all of a sudden there wouldn't be 12, there'd be a ton of apostles. A lot of people likely qualified for this. What, they're, what he's trying to say is for this specific vacancy to replace Judas himself, uh, here's the three things that need to be met at a minimum. And we know that it's just at a minimum because if this was the blanket requirement for all apostles, then Paul does not become one. Because as far as we know, Paul was not there at Jesus' baptism, you see? So why these, why these requirements to replace Judas, though? Uh, witness of Jesus' baptism, following Jesus through the course of his entire earthly ministry, and then witnessing his resurrection and ascension into heaven. Those are the three things Peter says. In other words, Judas's replacement has to ex have experienced Jesus from A to Z. That way, they can accurately articulate and preach the gospel to be witnesses with us in the resurrection. This is the way Peter says it. So in this sense, and this is a, a cool thing, whoever is going to take Judas's place actually exceeds Judas, goes beyond Judas, because Judas never experienced Christ's uh, resurrection or his ascension. He missed it. He's dead at this point. He had already disqualified himself from apostleship. So here we begin to see the good that God uses in all things to bring about. The good is this. The apostles were about to include a man who exceeded Judas, who exceeded Judas, especially in Judas's character. Well, who are they? After looking at the whole cadre or array of possibility, the text says they narrowed it down to two. And they put forward two, verse 23 says, Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice, and Matthias. So just so we're clear, there's only two, even though there's four names. <laughs> you got Justice and Matthias. And they, the apostles, said, prayed. I should say, they didn't just say this. They prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the, pla to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. All right, we don't really know much about these guys. Um, we know that, obviously, they were there from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So you can start to kind of piece together a little bit, extrapolate what that means. They saw Jesus uh, baptized. So they were witnesses of the Holy Spirit as a dove descending on Christ, and they heard the Father's voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. That's pretty cool. Uh, they, they would have traveled with Jesus all over the place, from Jordan to Caesarea Philippi, Galilee, uh, Jerusalem. Um, they, they would have 
witnessed Jesus' many miracles, like healing people, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the mute, uh, exorcisms, they would have seen that. Um, they would have had their mouth full with the other 5,000 people eating on the shore of Galilee with Jesus. Maybe they saw Jesus resurrect uh, Lazarus, who knows? Um, doubtless, they heard Jesus teaching, so they were there for the Sermon on the Mount. They were there when Jesus would um, teach Gentiles, when he uh, would go back and forth with religious leaders. Most importantly, they saw Jesus resurrected and ascend into heaven. So if you're going down this list of like requirements and you've got justice on one side and Matthias on the other, you got check, 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 check. They meet all of the exact same baseline requirements. So what separates them? I think Peter gives us a clue in his prayer. He doesn't say, Lord, show us which of these two men are more qualified. He doesn't say, Lord, you know their intelligence. Tell me which is going to be the better theologian. He doesn't say, Lord, you know whether Justice or Matthias are going to have more followers on Twitter, or they're going to be more likable on TikTok, or they're going to be more affluent and they can bring in more money. These are all the things we care about in ministry, right? Not the apostles. They could care less. What do they care about? Lord, you know the hearts. The heart is the heart of the qualification of ministry. At least it is for the apostles, and it should be for everybody. God knows Justice's heart, and he knows Matthias's heart. And that is the only distinguishing factor that we're given. And so this is a really good point of contemplation when it comes to spiritual leadership or, or ministry. What ought to be the core qualification for ministry? Is it your seminary education? Is it your natural talents? Is it your spiritual giftings? Listen to this. Is it even the fact that you were called? Is your calling the foundation? I don't know. I think what we're learning here is the foundation or the core or the center of the qualification to be a witness of the resurrection, to be in ministry, is your heart. A heart bent towards God for others. Because if it's not, and your heart is bent towards you, then you're going to use your education for selfish ends. You're going to use your natural talents to draw people to yourself and not to Jesus. You're going to abuse your spiritual gifts, which is possible. And you could have your calling revoked. Don't believe me? Ask Judas. Not many of you should want to become teachers, James says. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I don't wonder if at the core of that greater strictness is the continual eye of God piercing into the heart of spiritual leaders. At least I hope it is. I hope it is. Okay, so in replacing Judas, the apostles met together, they were reading, they were praying with each other, they still didn't know who to pick, all things being equal, they left it up to the will of God. God, you know their hearts, you make the decision. Well, how did they do that? Verse 26, are you ready for this? Oh boy. And they cast lots for them. What? This seems so peculiar to us, doesn't it? How many of us even know what casting lots is? There's a few people, yeah. 
Casting Lots. Um, casting Lots is, we don't know much about it. It was in a way in the Old Testament, and then one time here, uh, that people would discern the will of God. As far as we could tell, what would happen is they would put names on rocks, like they would write names on rocks or maybe symbols, and they'd put it into a bag and lightly hold the opening of the bag and kind of shake it, and then out comes a name, and pop, and they pick it up, and it's like, ah, Peter is buying pizza tonight, right? No, not like that at all. The whole rock thing in the bag is true, but the, the flippant decision-making, that part is not true, right? This is not the apostles, like, driving over to Block C, putting it all on red to see who should be the next apostle, because we inhabit completely different worldviews than they do. You got to understand in the ancient world, and this is hard to understand for us, in the ancient world, there is no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as randomness. It didn't matter in this context whether you were a Jew, a Greek, or Roman. You believed that God was sovereign over all things as a Jew. If you were a Greek, you believed it was the eternal logos, or if you were a Roman, you believed it was fate. Like, nobody believes in random chance. So that's the first thing we have to understand here. Why casting lots? The second, like I said before, this isn't some mindless roll of the dice. They got to this point well after they had exhausted their ability to discern God's will, and so they literally gave it to him to make the decision, because ultimately the decision of who's going to be an apostle is one that God makes, not one that men make. In fact, in casting lots, in the Old Testament, it was chiefly the responsibility of a priest. And because Jesus is the great high priest, I think it's safe to assume that the apostles didn't really see them as casting the lots so much as they saw Christ casting the lots through them. He being their mediator, who then pleads to God for his will to be made known to them. And was it? The rest of verse 26, and the lot fell to Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So yes, God's will revealed to them. It's not justice, it's Matthias. Quick side note on Matthias. Is this, if this name's not familiar to you, that's okay. Um, this is the first and last time we're ever gonna see his name. We're gonna learn about him generally, right? The apostles went here, the apostles said that, the apostles did this, and now he's one of the apostles. But we never really see his name again. Doesn't mean this is the end of his story. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, the, the possibilities of what happened to all the apostles. And Matthias, I mentioned, was possibly executed in Ethiopia and buried there. This is a fun little history lesson. Until the fourth century, then there was an emperor named Constantine. Anybody heard of Constantine before? Pretty famous guy from history. Whose mother, Helena, was a believer. She was a Christian before Constantine was. And Helena had this really weird obsession with collecting Christian stuff, Christian artifacts. And so she goes to her son. She's like, Constantine, you do your mama a favor? Constantine's like, yeah, mom, what do you want? I want Matthias's bones. Don't ask me why, but that's what she wanted. And she wanted Matthias to be exhumed 
from Ethiopia and relocated to her hometown of Augusta Trevororum. Anybody ever been to Augusta Trevororum? I have. Me and my wife lived there. It's in Germany, and today they call it Trier. So Matthias's remains, potentially, were relocated to Germany in Trier. And there's a beautiful little monastery, I have a picture there, where it's not open all the time because it's an active monastery, so there's monks that live there, but occasionally they'll let you in. Uh, one day we finally got the chance to go in. Very beautiful cloister, as they call it. This is their central worship space. This is my wife up there in, in the picture. Um, after she made a, an interesting discovery that if you get all the way up to the front of where this chapel is, uh, you can kind of see down a little bit into a basement level, and there's some stairs that I don't know if you're allowed to go down there, but we did. <laughs> and right below the altar is this, Matthias's ossuary. Okay, why am I telling you this? Because I want to share vacation photos? No. I'm bringing all this up to say, I don't think this is what Matthias would have wanted. I think God chose Matthias because his heart was lowly. I think God chose Matthias because his heart was humble. And that's why we never hear from him again. And that's just the way he would have wanted it. To serve the Lord Jesus quietly, humbly, and to die in obscurity. If that's your goal in life, it's a good one. It's a good one. Just a thought. Okay, I want to close with the kind of big principle here of how Matthias was chosen. In other words, like how do we discern the will of God? Have you ever been left with one or two choices, or sorry, two or three choices that, that all seem kind of equal? Oh. Maybe I'll, there was a couple of different college or university options that you had on the table. Couldn't decide where to go. You had multiple job opportunities. You're not sure who to marry or if you should marry at all. Not sure whether it's right to move your family across the country to take that new job. Anybody been there? We've all been there, right? Where the path doesn't seem clear, where there's fogginess around your decision making, where like God's will seems a bit indiscernible and unknowable. And then what happens? We become paralyzed by the what if scenarios, right? What if I go to the wrong college? I'm looking at you, university students, right? They're like, why is he looking at me? What if I went to the wrong college? Uh, what if I got the wrong degree? What if I wasn't supposed to be an engineer? What if I was supposed to be a full-time missionary? Now God's super upset with me. He's like, I guess you can have an engineering career, but that's not what I wanted. What if I uh, take the wrong job offer and I'm miserable at work and God had something super cool, but I've made the wrong decision. And God's like, well, you made your bed, now sleep in it. Uh, what if I married the wrong person? What if I uproot my family? and the job doesn't work out. Here in Acts, I think we see a good model of how to get out of what if land, a good model to follow. I'm not advocating for you to cast lots. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is the apostles did a bunch of things prior to casting lots. And what casting lots really means at the end of the day is making the decision and leaving it to the providence of God. Remember, we, we dropped into the middle of this story this morning. So what were the apostles doing up until they appealed to God for an answer? 
First, the text says in verse 14, they were with one accord. In other words, they were in Christian community, they were in fellowship, and they were doubtless talking to each other, right? Second, they were devoting themselves to prayer. So they were asking God prayerfully. Third, they were apparently reading the Bible because Peter said the scripture had to be fulfilled, and then he quotes the Psalms twice. And then fourth, and there's something we skip over really quickly, they put forward two. In other words, they weren't paralyzed, they took action, and then they left it to God, knowing that his choice is good, and it's always his will that they would become sanctified. So they're trusting God, and they're trusting that whatever happens, God's going to use it to sanctify them. One of the most common questions that we ask, what is God's will for my life? I get that question asked me a lot as a pastor. And if you've ever asked me that question and we had this conversation, you know where it's going. Because I give the exact same answer every single time. It's 1 Thessalonians 4.3, and I just tell you, that's it. What's the will for my life? For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And they'll say, yeah, 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 I know, but, but who should I marry? Should I marry her or should I marry her? I'm like, back to 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Yeah, but that's not helping me. Which college should I go to? God wants you sanctified. And I'm intentionally annoying for this reason. When it comes to discerning God's will for you, have you asked your Christian friends what they think, prayed about it, not just pray about it once or twice, but keep a prayer journal through months have you searched the scriptures about it? Have you put forward the options and still finding all, finding all things being equal, not asking, what if I make the wrong choice, but instead asking, will this sanctify me? Will God use this to make me more like his son? Can God sanctify me at this university or that university? If the answer is yes for both, make a choice and trust God's providence. Can he sanctify me in this job or that job? Will he sanctify me if I'm married to this person or if I remain single? Will God sanctify us as a family if we move across the country for this job? If the answer is yes, if, you're, if the answer is not you're running away from God and towards sin, if the answer is you aren't choosing an evil or unvirtuous form of study or career, if you're not contemplating marrying an unbeliever or you're not fleeing from marriage because of selfish reasons, if you're not sacrificing your family for the sake of your career, if the answer is yes, then do it. Cast the lot, make the decision, and leave it to the providence of God. And I guarantee you, because this happens all the time, once the decision is made and you've walked away from that what-if season, you turn around and you're like, oh, that was the decision I was supposed to make, right? It's just that taking that step forward, casting the lot, so to speak, is so terrifying to us because it's the last chance, we, or it's the last point we have to admit, I'm not in control. You're staying in what-if land because you still think you're in control. But giving yourself over casting a lot, so to speak, to the providence of God and recognizing that everything he desires for you in your life comes back to this, that you would be sanctified, that you would be made holy, set apart for his purpose, to be more like his son Jesus, 
to live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians 5. The faster you get there, the faster you get out of what if land, and the more you live in sync with God. You see, in the end, the will of God for your life is your sanctification, which means, if I'm looking at this text, Matthias was chosen over justice because God thought that he would sanctify the church more through Matthias than he would through justice. Why? Don't know. That's not for us to know. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. May that be done in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for a text like this because it bears your fingerprints, fingerprints of your Holy Spirit all over them. How at one point the intertextual connection can be so deep and complicated and yet the message so simple. Father, we thank you that nothing catches you off guard, nothing catches you by surprise, that even though terrible things happen in this life, you're not only with us in those moments, but you also, through your spirit, comfort us by reminding us of the promises that you have made. And that every single promise you've made to us finds their yes in your son. Father, we thank you that you don't just give us a map in life to try to figure it out on our own, but that you give us avenues to discern your will for us through Christian fellowship, through prayer, through your word, through taking action and all things being equal. Father, help us to trust in your providence, to recognize that we're not in control, but you are. And to trust that you truly are bringing together all things for good for those of you who love us. Father, we pray that we would be that kind of a people, desiring first, through faith alone, that your spirit would sanctify us. And in so doing, being in accord in life with your will. We love you and it's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. Friends, we enter into a time where we respond.